Hello everyone. Welcome to Risk Roundup. As Panama Papers begin to trigger mass protest, the biggest ever leak of secret data information is causing chills across nations. While the computer code connected computers, information, communication, and digitalization technology and internet have brought a positive impact on all aspects of nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia, in short referred to as NGIOA, it has also brought new vulnerabilities to each and every component of a nation, our society, and human life in cyberspace, geospace, and space, in short referred to as CGS. In addition to the cyber activism that we see across nations, in the cyberspace and in geospace, cybercrime and cyberterrorism, there is a vicious power struggle raging on in the cyberspace. This new cyber battleground is full of unknowns, including major players, minor players, rules of war, and reasons for war. In these cyber battlefields, the war casualties have been quietly piling up. It seems every nation, its government, industries, organizations, and academia has been hit and is at risk of being hit. No one is being spared, including common citizens. This cyber battleground brings each NGIOA, the good, the bad, and the unknown. With the world getting immersed in rapid advances in artificial intelligence, information, communication, and cyberspace technology, the activities in cyberspace have become inseparable from activities in geospace and space. The blurring boundaries of cyberspace with geospace and space has pushed each nation to a significant decision point today as they must continue to defend their current systems and networks in the geospace and space while simultaneously struggle to get out in front of the challengers and competitors in the cyberspace. As computer core connected computers and internet fundamentally transforms warfare between nations, the new reality of cybercrime, cyberterrorism, and cyber war is causing panic across NGIOAI. So the question is, how can any nation contain the threats posed by emerging technologies like artificial intelligence, computer code, connected computers, information and communication technology, and internet? To discuss this further, I'm delighted to welcome James McFarling to Risk Roundup. James is a national speaker and author on cybersecurity and cyber warfare. Welcome, James. I'm delighted to have you on Risk Roundup. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Wonderful, James. So let me begin by asking you a very fundamental question. Cyber activism, cyber crime, cyber terrorism, and cyber arms race. Are we prepared for this? Are we prepared? Yes. No. We're not prepared. I think, you know, cyber crime, for one, is exploding. And uh, the latest estimate I saw of the amount of cyber crime impact in 2015 was just above $500 billion. And that is uh, that places it above, if it's true, above the global drug trade. And what's more, the, the amount of cyber crime is expected to triple by 2019. And there's various estimates on that as well. Uh, and the, the, the types of things that are going on, uh, some are the same, some are new. We're seeing more of the, the uh, ransomware. Uh, we're seeing some attacks against the IRS here in the United States and against corporations to get uh, W-2 information on employees, as well as the ongoing credit card theft that we've always had. So it's uh, there's no end to it. And the, the one common factor 
is that we seem to be unable to stop these attacks. They just keep coming in spite of the resources that corporate America put into it. Uh, so it's, it's baffling and uh, yes. uh, we don't know quite where it's going to go. Yes, that is very true. No one uh, actually knows how it is going to end up, where it is going to go. Now, this Panama Papers leak that is in the news, making headlines everywhere across nations, how would you define it? Some would say it's a cyber crime for a good cause. Do you agree to that? Uh, well, I, 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 I pretty much am a, a, a pessimist on terms of looking at things like that. And uh, the, the things we hear about most are the crimes that are committed by probably large criminal syndicates, that type of thing. Uh, I would look at something like the Panama Papers, which was, uh, you know, appropriation of uh, information, assets from someone else. Uh, and I would very much look at that as something for the common good, as opposed to a crime that needs to be punished. Uh, I think somewhat differently about the Edward Snowden leaks in that what he leaked uh, affected more than just individuals. It affected the security of the United States. It affected the security of our Western allies. It affected our relationships with just about every major power in the world and has exposed a number of our operatives around the, 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 around the world. That is very dangerous and I, to me, that is a crime and uh, I hope we can get him back and prosecute him. Yes, now it seems there is a growing number of courageous people wanting to make a difference in the world even by having to go through some illegalities and putting themselves at risk as we see you know over the years now as seen in many cases and the most current one panama papers league there are good people uniting all across nations to address corruption and other evils of the society now when so many people all across nations are getting involved in developing cyber capabilities for a good cause how will nations contain this, these kind of cyber warfare towards corruption and other evils? It's a difficult problem. It's a difficult problem. And I always rejoice when I see that the uh, things like social media are being used for positive social causes and change and reaction and uprising against, you know, corruption and oppression. And it, that just shows part of the, the big power of, uh, of the internet and social media. And uh, that's for the good. It, it obviously works the other direction when you have the nation state itself uh, restricting the access to information or the use of information or to specific systems as China does with Google, for example. And so it works both directions. And I think on balance, we're very fortunate to have the ability to do for good and uh, those who are going to do bad will do bad no matter what tools you give them. These are the latest tools. Yes, yes, that is very true. Now let's talk about cyber warfare between nation states. It is reported that cyber warfare has been discussed openly since the 1990s and cyber strikes have already been part of many nations military strategy. It seems that it is only a matter of time that cyber warfare will escalate and destabilize perhaps the global economy or as some would say it is probably already destabilizing global economy. Do you see that? And can nations risk that? What, what are your thoughts on that? 
the uh, I think we're I look at uh, where we are today as kind of a transition point, and there. If you look at the serious quote-unquote uh, cyber attacks, okay, as opposed to cyber crime, attacks that actually did something, uh, you can go back to Stuxnet, for example, United States and Israel presumed to uh, on the attack on Iran. You can look at the response Iran had against uh, the United States banking networks, and most recently, getting inside of a, a New York dam. Uh, for which some indictments were recently issued. Uh, that the types of things that are happening are getting to be more frequent like that. And the most recent that is the most troubling to me is the Ukraine power outage issue. Now this is uh, this is critical for two reasons, well several. One is that it denied power during the winter to an estimated 230,000 citizens. And uh, although it took time, uh, the estimate around nine months, to prepare for that, the actual attack uh, occurred in a relatively short period of time, and it wrenched the control of the power stations from the control centers to the invaders. And that is very troubling for them, number one, and number two, is can those same techniques and methods be applied here in the United States? And the fear is yes. And in fact, the warnings went out immediately to our utility companies in the U.S. to be on guard. After and this was following the December 23rd Ukraine attack, uh, for this very very reason. Unfortunately, our utilities uh, we have over 1,900 organizations providing power to our power grid, and they uh, some are privately owned, some are publicly owned, some are municipal, some are federal, uh, and they do not march to a common drummer. There is no single authority that can cause them to do anything. It, it can be recommendations, et cetera. And so they don't necessarily have sh shored up cybersecurity networks. Uh, it varies all over, the, all over the place. So there's tremendous vulnerability there. And as we see the Ukrainian incident unfold, we begin to think, when will that happen here? And the question really is when more than if. Yes, yes, that is very true. And the question is only a matter of time when that is going to happen. Now, cyber attacks are somehow separate. I mean, they are separate from conventional warfare as it is not violent, instrumental, and we cannot attribute uh, to this, any action taken for a political goal or uh, you know any other uh, agenda. So we are facing a chilling new reality of cyber war in which no nation, its government, industries, organizations, academy, or even individuals are safe from any kind of cyber attack. So how to prepare any nation, how can any nation or any of its component or individuals prepare themselves for this scenario when they don't know where the attack is going to come from? Well, if you're talking about, uh, are you referring to deterrence, for example? Yes. And deterrence. Deterrence is difficult for a couple of reasons. If we look at the Cold War, it was primarily the U.S. versus Russia. We had the nuclear missiles. They had the nuclear missiles. 
and there was a standoff because the, as the saying goes, the first one to launch is the second one to die, but both will die. And in the world of cyber attacks, uh, the attribution who actually made the attack is difficult and can take time and sometimes it's not even possible. I have been in three different official briefings on who really caused the Sony Pictures attacks. And they're all three different from highly qualified people. So you say, gee, we'd like to have some retribution to North Korea, who was blamed. But on the other hand, did they really do it? And so if someone is to attack, let's take the most serious case. Someone is to attack the Western power grid of the United States, which happens in my book. Someone attacks it. What is the United States to do? Is the United States to say, gee, we think it's Russia or we think it's uh, ISIS and then take action and hope for the best? And what if we're wrong? And that attribution is very, very difficult. So the ideal is to prevent the attacks before they start through strengthened intelligence and preemption. Once you come across an attack that's about to happen, let's say that uh, intelligence uh, indicated that the Ukraine power attacks were about to happen, that an interdiction would stop it. Uh, but that does require intelligence. And as you and, and your viewers all know, the intelligence operation uh, in the United States with regard to the NSA has been severely crimped as a result of the Edward Snowden you know, situation. And therefore, our amount of intelligence uh, electronically has diminished. Therefore, our ability to see attacks coming is diminished and the ability to interdict or preemptive attacks against them is diminished. And so deterrence can be very difficult. Yes, yes, no, you're right. I mean, the capability to have uh, real intelligence is compromised at the moment. And in addition, it seems that uh, nations do not openly declare cyber war. I mean, nobody's saying that, okay, we are going uh, for you know cyber war we're declaring cyber war against so and so nation it's more like covert operations are there any discussions to bring some structure to cyber warfare with unanimous rules of engagement because it seems there are no rules of engagement for cyber warfare and, and that makes it very complex and that makes it very challenging to have any sort of preparation you know proactive preparation for this it's like the wild wild west yes there are no there are no rules of engagement. There are some treaties. Uh, I can give you an example of one that, I don't know if it's called a treaty, it's an agreement between uh, the President Obama and President Xi of China signed, and it caused, uh, it called for both nations to refrain from economic commercial espionage. In other words, uh, defense and military espionage is one category and everybody does it, always has. But as far as stealing United States secrets, corporate secrets, intellectual property, that is to be off limits. And they signed this agreement last fall. I happened about two weeks later to be in a, uh, a briefing session and uh, 
one of the people there was Tom Ridge, our first uh, Homeland Security Secretary, and I pulled him aside and I said, what do you think about this agreement with China? And he laughed. He laughed. He said, it's a farce because there is no way to verify that any progress is being made and there are no actions to say you've done this and here's what we're going to do back to you. So there's, there's no enforcement and therefore it, it, it's a nice thing to have and it's a good photo op. Now yes. for the rest of the world you can apply that. China has been going around with uh, Germany and Britain and some other nations doing the same type of agreement and to me they're trying to take the other countries off the table while they continue to do their what they want to do but that's my that's my view not everybody's view. No, I, so, I mean, I, uh, yes, go ahead, sorry. No, no, I was going to say, if you take that and expand it to other types of activities, okay, because you're right, it is, cyber war is the undeclared war. Yes. And it is a, a valid, uh, it is also, you know, something that can be done to cause, you know, physical harm, as we've seen. But the rules have yet to be worked out. I don't know how they're going to get worked out or when they're going to get worked out. And in the meantime, we have to be, the United States and uh, also all the Western nations and all nations, need to be um, really building up their arsenal. And so you see this huge race, arms race. There's a big article in the Wall Street Journal several months ago about the the arms race and uh, cyberspace and it's willy-nilly and it's dangerous because there are unintended consequences. Yes, yes there are unintended consequences and the challenge is also that with cyber warfare is not only nation states are involved but any many individuals, many groups with sufficient intelligence and smartness are involved. So uh, developing guidelines for common citizens or for everyone you know across nations, that is a very, very complex task. I'm not sure how will NGI be putting cyber warfare guidelines because if it was just nation states, you can you know come up with agreements like you said you know that uh, countries uh, governance can you know meet and they can define uh, what to do and what is off the table but when everyone is involved how can they be pulled into any sort of guidelines i don't from my point of view see how uh, guidelines can be a developed although there will be attempts there will be attempts or B, enforced because of the attribution problem that we're talked, we have talked about. Yes, yes. Now it's been- And, and therefore yes. that you also have, go ahead. You also have countries uh, or organizations such as the cyber militias or terrorist groups uh, such as ISIS, which of course is a, is a unexcelled, uh, I mean, it, it, it's hard to do much better at social media than they do, uh, but when they get further along, it's going to be more difficult. Uh, it's very hard to corral those people because you can have all the agreements and treaties and definitions and codes of conduct that you want, and those types of organizations, the terrorists and militias, will not abide by them anymore than criminals, common criminals in any country don't abide by the laws that are set by that nation. 
Yes, yes, that is the biggest challenge that we are facing in this uh, new digital global age. And cyber, it seems cyber weapons are easy to make and their potential use is unlimited. One doesn't have to be a nation state to do this. They just have to be really, really smart. They could be a kid, you know, a teenager. Anyone can make a cyber weapon. So this is a whole new world of unknowns where anyone around you can be an enemy trying to attack you. So how can anyone protect themselves for these unknowns? And especially when we hear that all these antivirus softwares, most of them are not even effective. So how can anyone protect themselves from these so many unknowns of you know attacks that could be coming their way? Well, there are, and I think sometimes, to, to be clear, to be honest, the hype uh, kind of overcomes reality in this talking about this uh, threat. And uh, I say that as someone who seriously believes in the threats. But I will also say this, that the serious attacks, Stuxnet took two years uh, reportedly to develop. The Ukraine, uh, although in its operation, uh, the uh, the attack was, was was straightforward and simple. The execution of that really was was complex. Um, it takes organization. It takes talented people. It takes money. It takes networks. And it's not something that individuals can seriously do. You're going to cause problems. An individual is not going to take down the Western power grid of the United States. It just isn't going to happen. So I think people get carried away with some of this. And then you have to back up and say, okay, who really has the resources to do something serious? And who would want to? Like, for example, I mean, the United States, uh, in my opinion, is in kind of a safety zone right now. And that safety zone is defined on one side by those parties, those nations who uh, can do us harm, and that would include China and Russia, of course, and perhaps uh, Iran, uh, really don't currently feel motivated to do so. I mean, I would think that China would not want to take out our economy. I mean, where are they going to sell their stuff? And so those that can don't want to right now, and those that want to can't. And once those who can't, and let's put Iran in there for sure, and let's put organizations like ISIS in there for sure, then that becomes a serious problem. So the question becomes one of timeline, when does that occur? And uh, the, the, the people who seem to be in the know on this, like the head uh, Admiral Rogers at the NSA, believe that we're talking about a matter of two to three years. Yes, yes. Uh, I, I, I hear your point on this, that we have to keep a track of resources, what kind of resources are required to carry out, you know, the kind of attack that would uh, debilitate any nation or its infrastructure. So we have to monitor th that supply chain and we have to make sure that it doesn't go in wrong hands. Now, cyber warfare between NGIOA implies developing new doctrines about what kind of forces are needed, what kind of resources are needed, just like, you know, you just uh, talked about it, when and how to deploy them, and what and how to strike on the enemy side. That means the questions like how and where to position what kind of computers 
related sensors, networks, databases, resources are becoming very, very important questions. So cyber warfare will likely raise uh, all these, you know, issues and new models, new, you know, way of tracking, monitoring things. So are nations preparing for this kind of, you know, uh, preparations for cyber warfare where they know, okay, what uh, kind of computers are required, you know, by terrorists or bad people like ISIS to create damage to our country? What kind of networks would be necessary? What kind of databases, resources? So uh, is there preparation going on in that direction? I'm not quite sure what you meant by that. If you could uh, rephrase that. Cyber warfare means, you know, just like military warfare required a set of doctrines about what kind of forces they need, what kind of weapons they need, what kind of equipment they needed, and how to deploy those, you know, uh, their troops and how to strike the enemy. Just like that, cyber warfare also requires what kind of computers are required what kind of technology tools are required, what kind of applications are required, what kind of network databases and resources are required to be able to conduct that kind of cyber warfare. So just like how we in the military uh, conventional uh, warfare, how the military is preparing for that kind of scenarios, in the cyber warfare, do we have a focused agency or do we have a focused uh, groups or, you know, organizations within and across nations that are preparing for that kind of scenario to see that what, who their enemies are and what would they require to be able to carry out such attacks on their country. So the, for their critical infrastructure or anything else, their financial systems or the transportation system. So do we have that kind of structured effort going on to no, to prepare and to proactively think that these are the things that our enemies would require to be able to attack us and let's stop them, uh, let's make sure that they don't get that. The, uh, from the United States point of view, we have resources militarily in each of the armed services. They all have their cyber components that enable them to integrate cyber operations in their normal operations of doing business. And an example of that is happening now, I'm sure you've seen that the uh, United States has announced, for some reason, I don't know why we announced it, that we're gonna be conducting or are conducting cyber operations against ISIS to interrupt their communications, to bring down their communications, to give them misinformation and things like that. And we're not talking about destroying you know, uh, equipment at this point. And so that's part of integrated cyber operations into a military action, either by, you know, the, the Marines or the Army. And then secondly, in, uh, here we have the U.S. Cyber Command, which is based next to the uh, NSA. And its mission is primarily to develop and deploy offensive cyber weapons. Uh, it has a staffing authorization of around 6,000 cybersecurity specialists. Their problem is they cannot find enough qualified people to do the work. They are 
they were supposed to be staffed this year and now it's 2018 and they're about half staffed. They can't do their job. And uh, these young people coming out of school or who have a couple of years of experience can make a tremendous amount of money in the US private sector if they are skilled in cyber networking and cyber security. So it's a very difficult problem for our country. And then if you project that to other countries, they are gonna have a similar problem of lack of resources, perhaps for different reasons, perhaps. I mean, in Russia, they might have a, a culture that says you have to do this. Uh, I don't know. So I, I, it's, a, it's a more difficult job. Getting a hold of the computers in the networks is physically doable. Getting a hold of the right people and getting them organized into the teams to do this work is a challenge. Yes. It is a challenge. Yes, it is a huge challenge. Resources and uh, it's, it's a very big challenge. Now, we know that cyber warfare is more than just technology. It is human and non-human intelligence processes and uh, so many other things that we need to be prepared for. The battlefield stands to be fundamentally altered by the rapid and ongoing information and communication technology revolution along with digitalization as at both the strategic and tactical levels in a digital global age. So uh, I'm not sure how many nations and their defense security departments are understanding the full reality of these changes. Do you have any thoughts about how many nations, not just United States, but how many nations in Asia, Africa, Middle East, they are understanding the full reality of these changes that are coming their way. There, uh, the estimates range all over the place. The uh, probably one of the best estimates I've seen recently is that there are 24 to 29 countries who are seriously and aggressively creating cyber offensive weapons. And so they realize the importance of, if you go forward in the world, the, the global climate, which is very uh, disruptive, uh, troubling at the moment, and you fast forward, they realize these countries, as do we, that as an instrument of war, as an instrument of national policy as an instrument of, of, of response. Cyber is a critical component and maybe in the future the critical component of warfare, however you choose to define it. And, and there's an argument going on now, has been for some time, about is it really warfare if no one has died? Okay. And so people on one side say if, if there's been no deaths and it's not war, it's cyber ops. And other people say, well, cyber war includes uh, other actions. And it really doesn't matter. It's terminology at this point. But what does matter is that you have a, a large number of nations, whether it's 24, 29, 15, that are aggressively pursuing these offensive weapons and don't know what to do with them necessarily, nor do they have any rules for deployment, nor do they have any better attribution than we do. And that is a very dangerous circumstance. Yes, it is. It is. And uh, you are right. I mean, a lot of people have that uh, thought process that nobody is dying in this warfare. So why worry so much? But it is not just the human life that is at risk here. It is the industries. It is our systems and our uh, infrastructure that is 
that it has taken us you know probably centuries to put together that is all at risk if we are not prepared and the challenge is that in this digital global age the security is no longer a governor, government affair see government alone cannot provide security in cyberspace everyone has all the components of a nation they have to effectively make sure that you know they play a role in providing security so but there are many uh, say that who say that you know the industries are much more advanced in securing their infrastructure in securing their uh, not all the industries most of the industries uh, that they are you know very well ahead like you said you know they are getting the resources you know very quickly because they are able to hire them you know in a by giving them you know good salary and good incentives and package but uh, the governments are moving very slowly in adopting the cyberspace revolution so it seems that in in the new information communication and digitalization technology applications that they are not you know transforming themselves operationally and organizationally as rapidly as the industries so there are many people who feel that this will create uh, digitalization imbalances where industries are far ahead in their capabilities and the governments are not what are your observation and what uh, do you see this concern that some people share well i see two concerns you raise uh, some valid points there one is that where where does private industry stand with regard to cybersecurity? Now, in in uh, in our country, uh, the estimate is that around 90% of the critical national infrastructure, and we include in that, of course, power, water, communications, transportation, is run by private organizations. That's not true in all countries, and so 90% of those networks are run by private organizations and are not something that the military is, our military, our defenses, is specifically involved in. In fact, uh, last April, boy, it's been a year now, Ashton Carter, our Secretary of Defense, gave a talk at Stanford University, and uh, among a number of things, and he was talking to a number of high-tech executives, and he was very clear to them that when it comes to cybersecurity, you, corporations, are on your own. We cannot do it. And so uh, the, it really needs to be a partnership because the government, uh, with the exception perhaps of our military, but the rest of the government is doing a terrible job of protecting itself. I mean, the IRS, most recently the Federal Reserve and the State Department, uh, the White House. I mean, the list goes on. It's incredible. Uh, so corporate America, though, is still having problems. I mean, J.P. Morgan has, uh, is, the, is the gold standard of cybersecurity and financial services, and look what happened to them. They lost 83 million accounts, information 83 million accounts. And it was like they found out by accident. And here you say, wait a minute, they got 3,000 people. They spend $250 million a year on cybersecurity. And uh, how can this happen? And, and so the Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, his response was, well, I'm going to double that. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get 6,000 people and I'm going to spend $500 million and we're going to stop this. But, I, you know, I don't know. Is he doubling down on something that doesn't work? I don't know what they're doing. So the corporations are, um, they're having problems too, but they're trying. 
the government agencies are having problems and they're not trying, Office of Personnel Management being a good example of how they had multiple audits that they needed to change, shore up their security and they did not. Uh, and then the military is actually, I think, if you look at the Cyber Command and the, and the NSA is not military, but the NSA, you have an advanced uh, tip of the spear, as they say. Yes, yes. I, I mean, the, the, those challenges are there, James. And, you know, when uh, people say that, you know, industries or businesses will be, have to, you know, uh, manage their own cyber securities, I'm not sure how that is going to be possible. Now, and NIST, you know, NIST uh, guideline says that public-private partnership should be there and people should work together. But how? I mean, just by saying that, let, you know, have a public-private partnership, you all work together and... Uh, that is not going to work like that. We need to put together effective structure, effective frameworks, so that people, industries, you know, any entity within and across NGIOA are able to, you know, uh, work together. We just don't have that. For example, you know, I, I feel that there is a strong need for inter integrated, interdependent uh, cybersecurity risk management framework. Now, there is a cybersecurity risk management framework, and NIST, you know, uh, has uh, released the guidelines for that. But to me, it, it is more like an information security. Cybersecurity is not information security. That is the biggest challenge I see in that framework. And the second challenge is that they don't provide the proper structure by which, you know, any entity across NGIOA would be able to, you know, identify, evaluate, manage, communicate, and uh, uh, track their, you know, cybersecurity risks. Because let's say, you know, there, I'm sure there are many, many entities across NGIOA who wants to do the right thing, who wants to identify the risk, but they just don't know how to do that because they, there is no structure right now. So we need to first and foremost, you know, provide a proper, effective cybersecurity risk management structure by which, you, and then they, we have to make sure that each and every entity across NGIOA, they are, they need to, you know, uh, make sure that they have that implemented within their organization. Now, how to do that? We have so many entities across. Uh, uh, nations uh, across industries and organizations, academia, there's so many different components. How to make sure that each and every one of them implements the cybersecurity risk management framework to be able to manage this risk effectively. So how do we do that? I think that cyber insurance, insurance industry can play a very effective role. I mean, back uh, 200, uh, few hundred years back, insurance industry played a significant role in defining standards about so many different things. I think insurance industry, you know, digital globally, they can do the same. They can, you know, make sure that any entity across NGIO, if they want to purchase cyber policy, cyber insurance policy, they have to first and foremost make sure that they have effective cybersecurity risk management effort going on within their organization. And second is that any independent risk that any entity, for example, JP Morgan or any uh, energy industry, any uh, company within energy industry or transportation industry, if they have identified cybersecurity risk that they can manage on their own within their corporate boundaries, they have to, that those risks should not be insured. And only those risks which has dependencies, 
they should be insured and that you know cyber security policy should be you know issued for that so insurance industry can play a big role in enforcing that you know each and every entity across ngio is doing the right thing by making sure they are having effective processes and structure for the you know cyber security risk management and the ones that they are not able to manage they have identified the risk that they have interdependencies then we need to have a organization we need to have a structure for how to manage those interdependent risks because everyone is in this together government industries organizations and academia and we need to have proper structures by which we can identify if we have any entity has identified integrated interdependent risks then we need to have a structure by which we can manage those risks so i see so many gaps there are none of those things are there even within united states so how are we going to be able to manage cyber security risks that has so many interconnections and interdependencies at this point i'm not sure how to do that well uh, you mentioned a couple of key points uh, cyber insurance is one uh, looking at cybersecurity as a risk management issue is the correct way in my opinion and if you look at the organizations who seem to be doing a more effective job of quote unquote cybersecurity securing their their information assets they they not only have IT represented at highest level uh, the C level but they also have risk management either taking the lead or having a very large vote in how things are done so that for example when a new product line is introduced particularly if it's a technology company uh, what are the cybersecurity measures that are built into that product and what are the liabilities that might accrue if things go wrong and so the risk management lead is really really important where organizations get in trouble is when they say quote unquote well cybersecurity is IT's problem and lets them do it when it, in fact it's an organizational problem now I personally believe and, and there's uh, I think a lot of people do that think that cyber insurance uh, is a double-edged sword, but on balance, it's very good because go, just going through the process of applying, as you said, applying for the insurance uh, forces a, a, an organization to look at where their risks are, where their gaps are, and where their holes are. And that process is worth as much as the value of the uh, insurance itself. The downside is that there will always be people in an organization that say, Hey, I don't have to worry about this because it's insured. And uh, that that's the downside. On balance, cyber insurance is playing a very, very large role. And I just want to touch briefly on something else you mentioned that is critical, and that's the public-private partnership, <clears throat> something we don't have uh, here in our country. Uh, we have, uh, well, look at a small case, but it's a visible one, is the Apple versus FBI spat over the unlocking of the uh, iPhone, okay? They cannot even work together on that. They're going to court and Apple's you know, willing to take it to the Supreme Court. Well, in this particular case, the government found another way, but there will be other cases. And so that's just one example of the lack of ability of our public and private sector 
to cooperate. And I've been in meetings where the, or agencies like the FBI have pitched to uh, IT executives and the industry people that, look, we really need to work together. And you know, I've seen people uh, from industry stand up and say, we're not, we don't want to work with you, FBI, because we don't trust you. You know, we give you information, we get nothing back. And if we give it to you and it gets to the wrong party, then we get harmed. And so is, there's some built-in problems here. And, and if you look at, we have some successes. I mean, if you look at our, uh, the best one I think is the space program. The space program was the, the largest public-private uh, undertaking in the history of the planet. And uh, there are over 100,000 private companies involved. And of course, endless government agencies. And pulled together in a short period of time relatively to put a man on the moon. And that is phenomenal. It's phenomenal. Do we have that mindset in cybersecurity? And as you mentioned, the answer is no. And uh, if you want to be really cynical about it, you can say, well, the tech industry in uh, the United States is much more interested in selling the next app or doing the next update to Facebook. And, and uh, that's where they're going to put the resources because they are coining the money yes you know, they're, they're, the tech industry is is almost as powerful as a nation state i mean they 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 really apple thinks they're above the law and so it's uh it's difficult then in that power structure to work together and if we don't as you mentioned if we don't work together uh the government cannot solve it by itself i don't know where it's going to go that is very true. I mean, the, like you said, you know, there are challenges. There is no trust between, you know, industries and governments and uh, nobody is willing to take the first step and they they see the liability by sharing more information because that would, you know, come back on them and they would end up in more trouble. So uh, organizations are hesitant to share information even though they have identified some uh, uh, critical, you know, data which points that, you know, either they have been, you know, impacted or other organizations have been impacted, but nobody wants to share. So that that is the reason we need to provide a proper incentives when we, you know, structure or formalize the cybersecurity risk management framework. So everyone is, you know, willing to share that, you know, without any fear or hesitance. And uh, they know that, you know, by doing that, they are not going to end up in uh, legal problems or, you know, other financial problems. So, and this is more important because it is, it, we are not talking only about information data security that is, uh, you know, on their servers or, you know, on their computers. This is much bigger than that. This intelligence that has been, you know, stolen that you know all the raw materials the blueprints the date uh, you know intellectual property and all that this cyber theft uh, where the aim is not terror but fraud or the collection of economically valuable information uh, it remains the source of the most serious losses to large corporations and computer crime so it is very serious because it is even if uh, the current industries are not impacted right now because of that intellectual property theft, the strategically, you know, they could be in uh, much bigger trouble and, you know, our industries could be in uh, serious risk. So how how are we addressing those kind of strategic risks? Because I don't see, I mean, at this point, if you see, most of the focus is on, when you talk about risk management, it is on operational risk, legal risk, financial risk, and uh, compliance risk. 
that's all where we pay attention that but when you look at it all the resources are going only towards that so when you look at the overall risk portfolio in a digital global age strategic risk makes up on about 70 to 75 percent of the total risk portfolio there is no resources allocated there which has the biggest impact most of the resources are only going towards legal and compliance risk because when it is mandatory for organizations to you know make sure that they are you know within their uh, regulatory you know guidelines they're following all the things they're in compliance with all the laws and everything so they are all their mindset is only towards that their focus is there whereas the focus should be how are our industries our businesses going to get impacted by the innovations that are happening in the cyberspace or because of the cyberspace but there are limited resources for any organization and when there is so much pressure to meet the regulatory requirements the resources and uh, my thought process is just not going where it should be going so i think that is another very big risk that we are facing as a nation that we don't know where the innovations and our competition is coming from it could be from anywhere from across the sector across the industries or from uh, other nations how are we going to be prepared if we are not even thinking about it? Yes, it's difficult. And I, I, I appreciate what you mentioned um, about, the again, the risk portion of this. And it uh, if it's looked at from a risk point of view first, we have a better opportunity. The thing that, that concerns me, going back to just for a second, to probably private partnership, is that uh, we clearly have two, uh, we have a public sector, private sector, who have totally different goals and objectives with regard to cybersecurity and an interest in that. Uh, so the, the, the nations and the organizations who have a leg up on us are those which are the more totalitarian uh, states that say this is what we're going to do and you will participate and they're not as worried about the next Facebook update or the next app. They're not worried at all because they don't produce those. And so they can marshal their public private interests much more quickly than we can. And if we try and legislate our way, it's it a it will take forever i mean the the the, the information sharing act that was just signed uh, and uh, into law uh I, I don't know somewhere between four and six years getting that done and that's a long time in cyber time it, it, it's impossible and if you look at the financial industry it is so highly regulated uh the, and, and, I think there's some 17 or 18 regulatory agencies that monitor financial services firms. And each of those agencies has their own checklist of what they would like the organizations to do in terms of cybersecurity. And sometimes those lists match, sometimes they don't, sometimes they're conflicting. And the poor, you know, financial services people, they just give me one set, one set, and uh, let us go. So uh, we don't need one more legislation or one more you know um, law that says you should do this we need to somehow rationalize what we have and 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 i don't know quite frankly how you get people to buy into that and i hope that in terms of this private public partnership question that it does not take a major event such as 
power grid attack, and it, and I'm talking an extended attack. I'm not talking about the three days um, to cause us to go into action. And uh, if, if we had an attack where the grid was down in any portion of the country for even five to ten days, the consequences uh, are immense. They're immense. I mean, you, you only have to go back to Katrina in New Orleans and the Memorial Hospital there was cut off, had no supplies and no power. They had generators, but they ran out. And by day four, they had body bags lining the, the hallway in the hospital because they, they had to disconnect the people they are on life support. They didn't have medicines for them. They didn't have any way to treat them. And it goes quickly. Four days is a quick time. And I know our hospitals here have generators uh, and they they will last four to five days and they run out of fuel and there is no more fuel because you can't get it and so in 10 days you can have some very very difficult consequences here or any place if the power grid is out that long if if it takes that type of catastrophe to bring those two parties together that is a real shame Yes, yes, it is. It is. There. We are facing very complex challenges, very serious risk, and we uh, have to start thinking about it. And uh, uh, James, I appreciate that you, you know, were willing to come on Risk Roundup and share your valuable thoughts. Uh, as you said, you know, there are so many complex challenges in this, and uh, just by having a dialogue about public-private partnership, we are not going to achieve anything. We have very complex challenges uh, coming our way where even though we have regulation you know for certain things right now uh, we, that is not going to prevent the other attack because you know the tools and technologies and the nature of attacks that are coming our way they are evolving so rapidly and the regulations cannot keep up with that so that is a big risk that we are facing but james let's uh, uh, talk about uh, your books that you have written uh, so mm -hmm. You, would you mind sharing details about your books on cybersecurity and cyber warfare for the benefits of our global viewers and listeners? Because uh, as we talked before, you uh, mentioned that you know you uh, made an effort to make it in a fictionalized form so that you know people get interested in reading that. In a because this is a very serious topic, and to just put it as a textbook, it becomes a boring for a lot of people to read. And you wanted to educate, you know. Uh, Masses, so you took you took a different approach by fictionalizing this. And so, would you mind sharing those details and how, if someone was, is interested in reading that book, where they could purchase that and uh, uh, information about that? Oh, thank you, thank you, I appreciate that. Uh, yes, I did make a decision early on uh, to do something that would engage the reader in uh, actually fact, although it's a fictional story and in a way uh, become more aware, perhaps more alarmed. And so I chose the novel approach. The name of the book is Aftershock, a novel. And I, it's, it, it, the aftershock part comes from the, not the attack on the Northern California power grid, but from the aftershock occurs in Washington, D.C. and the uh, reaction of the U.S. government and the U.S. military and the political establishment, and it happens to take place in an election year, so there's there's all kinds of shenanigans going on, and that reaction uh, 
shows itself as being more dangerous than the original attack that triggered it. And this is not an anti-government book by any means. I'm a, I'm a believer in our government. Uh, but it shows how dangerous things can be uh, when they get out of hand. And it does take, in the book, a public-private partnership to get some resolution. And that was the other point I was trying to make. And that is you have to be able to work together. And if you do, you can make progress. Uh, but unchecked, um, even our well-meaning politicians and military can go too far. Yes, yes, that is very true. Uh, so uh, we are going to conclude our session here. James, thank you so much for uh, sharing almost an hour of your valuable time with us. And your input was uh, uh, really right on the target. And I'm sure our global viewers and listeners are going to benefit tremendously from what you had to say in this dialogue. And they would uh, start thinking about these big questions that we are all facing as a nation. Uh, the challenges and complexities of evolving threats and security has crossed the barriers of space, ideology and politics, demanding a constructive collaborative effort of all stakeholders across nations. That means government, industries, organizations, academia and individuals. When the changing nature of threats are bringing new sets of challenges and complexities, collective brainstorming is a necessity and not an option to have an objective evaluation of what is a threat and how can it be secured, like what we are doing right now through Risk Roundup. That was the main reason we uh, launched Risk Roundup, so we can have a collective dialogue and we can invite uh, uh, experienced people uh, like James McFarlane who have gone through so much uh, of their life journey in uh, making sure that uh, our security, we manage our security in an effective way. So cybersecurity requires an integrated approach with a common language while appropriate hardware and software is a fundamental necessity, establishing effective cybersecurity risk management framework, integrated and GIOAI approach and structure processes are even more important. Risk groups, cybersecurity risk research center and strategic security risk research centers are created for this very reason to identify, evaluate and manage the risk facing NGIOA in CGS. We at risk group believe that risk management, security and peace walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, risk management is related to the management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. And it is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts feed into each other. So we believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secured for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security. So if you build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risk together. For more information on the risk roundups, to watch the risk roundup videos or to hear the risk roundup podcasts, please go to riskgroupalacy.com and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayashree Pandya, host of Risk Roundup signing off. See you next time. Thank you.